Hello for lover, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up, is budget day in Aotearoa, but the Pacific package seems a little light. Also, inspire some more young Pacifica to also pursue a tertiary degree. We meet the Tongan triplets, each pursuing a career in law, and later on... I firmly believe that we can learn from the past. Could pottery solve the climate crisis? A lecturer believes so. The Pacific package in New Zealand's budget has dropped to almost a third compared to last year's. Labour's Pacific allocations came to $51 million in this year's budget. Last year, it was $196 million. Caleb Fotheringham reports. Minister for Pacific Peoples Barbara Edmonds says although funding specifically for Pacifica has decreased, Pacific people will benefit from broad initiatives like scrapping the $5 co-payment on prescription medicine and free public transport for children under 13. Mrs Edmonds says the drop in the Pacific package was a sign of the times. This particular budget package, yes it is smaller than the year before, but again it is a sign of the times that we're coming through and we've also got a wider budget initiative which again Pacific people will benefit greatly from. The biggest spend in this year's Pacific package is $14 million set aside for programmes to strengthen New Zealand's Pacific workforce. The next biggest spend is $13.3 million and will go towards the Pacific Languages Strategy. Some of that money will go towards funding, media and broadcasting content. There will also be almost $13 million going towards improving labour market outcomes for Pacifica. It's graduation season and at Victoria University of Wellington this week, hundreds of aspiring young men and women recapped and walked the stage to receive their degrees. Among them were Tongan identical triplets, Keo, Max and Jackson Tuinukuafe, or graduating with law degrees. Finau Fonua spoke with the trio to talk about their unique relationship. Born only minutes apart, the identical Duinukuafe triplets were impossible not to notice at their graduation ceremony this week in Wellington. Triplets are rare. According to the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, identical triplets only occur once in every 10,000 births. Middle brother Max says it's a special bond. It's a sort of closeness and relationship that's like, you know, if someone's your brother, but like even even closer to that, you know, we, we um, you know, it's it's like a, a higher version of, of like being brothers, like we're so close, it's it's almost indescribable, the relationship we, we have, but we've been together since day one and that'll never stop, yeah, and we're, we're, we're very, very, very close. In Tongan, triplets are known as mahangatoru, literal translation twin free. The Dui Nukuafe trio share many of the same passions, playing for the same rugby club, and all are studying law. There's an inseparable bond of support, but the youngest brother, Jackson, says it can get really competitive. Yeah, no, we're extremely competitive with each other. Yeah, we have our ups and downs, but yeah, probably probably just clash because we're so competitive. But um, no, we're pretty good friends. Max agrees. You've got two people who look exactly like you and you know, very similar to you, so you're always being compared. Um, so you're always kind of like, you know, getting ranked who's who's the best at something, and so you, know, you get pretty driven to 
to try beat each other, but also we're, we're just competitive people in general. You know, we, we want to achieve and we want to do well. So, yeah, we're always just constantly kind of grinding to get one up on each other. But um, at the end of the day, it actually all worked out. We're all very even. Being identical and looking the same has its quirks, with many unable to tell the difference. They've had their fun. Eldest brother, Kale says they share a number of funny stories. There's this one story about um, we all got into a shared lunch at school. We um, just, one one of us had a shared lunch and then we all just took turns. I, I had my lunch and then I went and, uh, went and swapped with my brothers, which was kind of funny. Jackson says they're often confused for each other by their friends. Uh, when we're walking around, we... Um, if someone says hello to us and we don't know, we just sort of just pretend, say, oh, hello, and how are you going without trying to give it away because we've just sort of um, gotten used to seeing people that our brothers know but we might not know. So, um, but yeah, that happens quite a lot, just wandering around and seeing people that don't, we, we don't quite know but still sort of acting like we know them because one of our brothers probably is friends with them. The triplets' graduation is cause for much celebration at Victoria University. Pacifica are underrepresented in law, so having free to graduate with a law degree at the same time is a massive boost. K.O. says they hope their achievements inspire other Pacifica youth. Yeah, it was um, a really, really proud feeling, really, really happy feeling that we can... um, represent our Tongan heritage um, and hopefully inspire some more um, young Pacifica to also pursue a tertiary degree. The trio are pursuing their separate careers as lawyers and are already working for firms in Auckland. Australian Jack Roden was a Colombo Plan student studying in the Papua New Guinea Highlands when he saw that students in schools there had little or no access to computers. He decided to do something about this and set up Lighthouse International, which in the ensuing six years has provided thousands of computers across three countries including Australia, PNG and the Philippines. Don Wiseman asked Jack Roden what has driven him. I started the organisation back in 2017. Uh, I was a university student up in the Western Highlands of Papua New Guinea. And while I was there, I was studying constraints to human development uh, and sustainable development. And I had the chance to uh, visit some schools. And while I was in one particular school, I saw something that I just couldn't accept. And that was that there was pretty well everything that I had growing up in Australia in terms of learning infrastructure, but no technology in the schools. And I thought, well, how can that be a quality education if it's not a digital education in today's world? And so I, I couldn't accept that. I couldn't accept that those students were going to go through their learning journey without access to digital learning tools and opportunities. So I I donated my own personal laptop. I got a little bit excited in front of some media that were there at the time and promised to come back with 12 more laptops and build what I didn't know at the time would be one of the first ever functional digital classrooms in the whole country. So in order to fulfill that promise, I came home to Australia. I founded Lighthouse International as an NGO and came back six months later to the Western Islands of Papua New Guinea and built a digital classroom in the school. And since then, we have built a total of 176 school computer labs across the primary and secondary education sectors. So it's been a busy couple of years and we've provided digital learning tools and opportunities to over 114,000 people now in Papua New It's pretty impressive. How many computers in each unit? So in each uh, digital classroom, there's between 15 and 30 desktop computers, occasionally laptops uh, in the more remote areas. But it just depends on the size of the classroom and how many, how many we can fit. Of course, these schools are very resource poor 
and quite often uh, finding a space can be challenging and that's what rules a lot of schools out. But yeah, it's not just the computers though inside our computer labs. There's also a fantastic piece of software that's been developed by a, a Port Moresby setup called NewNet. What it does is it provides a comprehensive e-library which contains 6.2 million educational articles including content from uh, Wikipedia, Khan Academy and many other open source providers from around the world. So it gives schools access to 6.2 million educational articles regardless of whether they have access to internet or not. A lot of the parts of the country that we work in, it's not possible to get connectivity in the first place, but even for schools that can, it's a very expensive country for uh, to have internet connection. And so a lot of schools default um, on their digital bills. Whereas with our model, it means that these schools can have access to all of this treasure trove of information for free, anywhere, anytime. You have been quoted in the local media as saying... One of the drawbacks is there's very little knowledge uh, among the teaching fraternity of computers and very, very few skills. Yes, absolutely, but it's certainly not a uh, not, not an inhibitor to what we do because we've stood in to fill that gap. Uh, one of the first steps in any of our projects that we do is to work with the teachers to build digital capability amongst that cohort. Once you get the teachers, they're the gateway through to the students, so they're the most important stakeholder in our project. We've developed a digital skills passport and also a digital skills guidebook. So the passport is really the key to how we teach the teachers and train the teachers. And as I've said before in the media, probably 85, 90% of the teachers that we deal with have very, very limited digital skills, if any, if they've ever used a computer before in their lives. But from my most recent trip to PNG, I've seen just what is possible in the most remote parts of the country if you just give people the tools and you just give people the learnings and and, and a chance, to be perfectly honest. So we've trained hundreds of teachers. Uh, We've worked in close collaboration with divisions of education around this as well. We've also uh, recently gained more resourcing to be able to do more of this as well. And we're looking at creating digital hubs. So within some of our partner schools in the province, nominating one of them to be the digital hub where teachers from uh, surrounding schools can come together to one place uh, and receive training and and learnings that they take back into their own communities. The digital skills guidebook is something that uh, we've created. It's more of a teaching curriculum. One of the biggest challenges for teachers is not only gathering the digital literacy to be able to use the computers, but also around digital instruction. How do you teach other people how to use computers? And the digital skills guidebook is both in English and also in Tok Pisin, uh, and it's been a huge success, and we've had some great feedback from that from a, a number of schools that we work with across the highlands. Well, how big is Lighthouse? So it's a small uh, a small NGO, but with a massive footprint. That's how I usually describe it. Um, so we've got four full-time staff in Australia, one full-timer in the Philippines, where we also do this work. And also we have two full-time staff in PNG and a number of part-timers there as well. So in terms of our operational footprint or our headcount, uh, we're quite a small organisation, but we are a rapidly growing charity. I believe we've just, uh, just emerged into the top 15% uh, by revenue size of charities in Australia, according to the ACNC. So we're rapidly growing and we're, we're working across PNG, Australia and the Philippines, putting out about 7,500 devices into the community a year. Could pottery hold the answers for Pacific people surviving the climate crisis? Are there lessons in the migration journeys of our ancestors for the problems of today? These are the kinds of questions the University of the South Pacific is hoping will be answered at a major Lapita conference it's hosting in Fiji next month. Kuroi Hawkins spoke with Frank Thomas, the institution's senior lecturer in Pacific Studies, and began by asking what was significant about the Lapita peoples. Well, thank you, Kuroi. Why is Lapita important? Um, many of you, many of us have learned in school about the so-called Lapita people, the so-called Lapita migrations, 
Um, it's definitely a seminal and integral part of our history, uh, most notably in the area known as remote Oceania. Remote Oceania are islands and group of islands to the east of the main Solomon's chain. So the Lapita people, it's still quite a bit uh, controversial, uh, migrated uh, out of near Oceania, the islands of uh, nearby Papua New Guinea, uh, the Northern Solomons, uh, where people have been living for thousands of years before the so-called Lapita, uh, the appearance of, of Lapita and its distinctive cultural markers. So why is Lapita important? Um, as I mentioned, it is part of our heritage. It is part of our history. Uh, and it also provides interesting stories and lessons about how people have uh, migrated to and adapted to insular or island conditions. Uh, implications for history, obviously implications for identity as well. But how did people manage to survive um, for hundreds and thousands of years um, in, in relative uh, isolation. At the same time, they've established uh, networks, um, which hopefully I will be talking about more this afternoon. So lessons for the present, lessons for the future. Uh, I don't want to stretch it too far, but, you know, people have adapted for hundreds and thousands of years to climate change, uh, cooling and, and rising sea levels as well natural disasters and catastrophes so i still i still i firmly believe that we can learn from the past not just from the lapita past but as a as an archaeologist we can definitely draw lessons um for the future and future generations and and who all are coming to this uh, and when is this happening the event will take place between june 26th and the 30th of this year uh, it will be hosted, jointly hosted by USP, uh, Lavala Campus, as well as the Fiji Museum. Um, so presentations, as a matter of fact, uh, Colleague and I put together the, uh, which we hope was the final program this afternoon, but we still have papers coming in, even though our website is, is closed for abstracts. So the presentations, we have, well, at this point, well over 30 papers squeeze into five days, um, dealing, of course, with Lapita, the Lapita phenomen phenomenon. But I think it's important to emphasize that throughout the years, uh, the Lapita conferences were also able to accommodate papers related to other aspects of Pacific Island archaeology and other heritage, tangible heritage issues. Now, in terms of, of what's been recently discovered, what are some of the new findings um, in this space? Well, I thank you, Koroi. I anticipated that question. Um, there's so many, so much we can say about Lapita, but the most significant, one of the most significant discoveries in the recent years uh, is the discovery of the uh, uh, cemetery, a large cemetery at Teuma on the island of Efate in Vanuatu. Now, that's already kind of old news. The site was uh, first discovered in 2004, I believe. Uh, ANU was very much involved. So it was uh, Professor uh, Matthew Spriggs and Stuart Bedford and many others. So this was also a significant finding because it was the largest 
Lapita era uh, cemetery ever documented. And we were able to, uh, the experts were able to conduct, of course, the standard excavations. They've uncovered beautiful Lapita pottery. But more significantly, they were able to extract uh, ancient DNA from some of the burials and uh, establish connections with uh, existing populations and also populations that are no longer represented um, in modern times. And, and drew a series, of course, of controversial uh, conclusions, depending on which camp uh, you, were, uh, you were in. So I would say that in terms of Lapita discoveries, uh, that was definitely the, the most significant one uh, on a regional scale. Now, we had other projects uh, right here in Fiji. We had the site of Burewa uh, and also other early Lapita sites, uh, for example, on Boroboro Island off the coast of Vanualevu. Uh, not as spectacular, perhaps, as the discovery of the Tuma burials, but definitely important in terms of our um, culture history and the chronology of Lapita. That's Pacific Wave for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs, or you can download us on Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, till fast week four.